Thank you for downloading this resource from the International Christian Medical and Dental Association. To find out more, go to www.icmda.net slash resources. The views expressed in this resource do not necessarily reflect those of ICMDA. Well, good morning, everybody. Now, today, we are going to continue looking at the career of Joseph as an administrator. We notice that he, early on in his captivity, showed considerable ability as a person who could organize. And this career as a, an administrator has several phases to it. He was first an administrator in the house of Potiphar in Egypt. He then became an administrator in Potiphar's prison. And he finally ran a world empire. It's an extremely interesting career path. But if we notice that it's in the book of Genesis that this story occurs, it adds to it a very important dimension. At the beginning of Genesis, the prominent human beings are Adam and his wife and their children. At the end of Genesis, the prominent human being is Joseph. And there is a very marked contrast between the two. Because God created human beings in his own image to run the world. And Adam and Eve were placed with all their intelligence in a garden to run it for God and in fellowship with God. But Adam lost the plot. And so the pain of human experience began. And so here at the end of the book, we find another man. And we shall be looking at how he compares and contrasts with the first man in these stories. So let us read a little bit more about the story of his administration of the palace of Potiphar. We noticed yesterday that the basic principle on which Joseph worked was that he had a sense of God directing his life. And interpreting that in New Testament terms, I suggested to you that he had learned the secret that the goal of work is God and an experience of God that he'd learned not to confuse the goal with the byproducts. And we shall see how that works out, because as our Lord explains in Matthew chapter 6, the main area in which we can detect the government of God is in our experience of righteousness, the ethical situations that are created by the workplace. Because, of course, most of the temptation in life comes in the workplace, doesn't it? 
And it was so with Joseph, as we shall now see. Joseph is now the senior administrator in the palace. Chapter 39, and it is verse 7, tells us something about his physique and his physical appearance. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except, except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as he spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he'd left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me. And the story goes on to tell how she told her husband, who was furious, verse 19. As soon as his master, that is Potiphar, heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Now you will notice how carefully this is written. The background drumbeat in all of this story is the statement the Lord was with him. And yet it is a description of the most unlikely of circumstances. Unjust. Unfair. And it tells us a lot about real life. Human beings are wonderful creations of God. They are equipped with a variety of senses that bring added dimension into what it means to be alive. We have appetites, starting with food. We have sexual appetites. We have a sense of aesthetics, we can admire beauty. And all of these things are magnificent gifts of God. 
But the cleverness of God's enemy is to take some of these magnificent gifts and so to pervert them as to lead human beings away from a true sense of what it means to be alive and to trip them up. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And this woman, this bored wife, I suspect she was, immensely wealthy, noticed that in her house there was a young man who was very much to be desired, possibly compared with her aging husband. And it put Joseph under enormous pressure. He found that there was temptation in his workplace, as many a man has found since, where the secretary turns out to be much more beautiful than the wife at home. And day after day, she pressurized him. What was he to do? He was a normal human being, desperately lonely, one can imagine, having lost all the family and friends of background. And he, like anybody else, had sexual desires and would be desperate for intimacy. And here it was being offered. And it wasn't only that. Some of the ancient historians tell us that if Joseph had slept with this woman, it could have been a way for him to gain Potiphar's position. It could have been, as of course it has been in history for many people, a pathway to power. And yet he resisted. If there had been any psychologists of the more contemporary kind around, they'd have told him not to be silly, but to go for it. The natural desire, and she wants it, why not? Have a bit of fun. Live. And yet he refused. And the interesting thing about it is that what stabilized him and gave him the resource in that extremely pressured situation where opportunity was around every day of the week, where did he get the resource from? Well, now we find it here. He speaks to her and he talks about Potiphar. And Potiphar's placed him in an extremely senior position where everything is open to Joseph. Nothing has been withheld except one thing. Do we hear the echoes of earlier in Genesis, ladies and gentlemen? Everything was possible to eat in that garden, wasn't it? Except one thing. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day you eat that, you shall surely die, says God. Nonsense, said the talking snake. You shall not surely die. In the day you eat, you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. You really live. So now what have we got? A rerun of the fall. That's what we've got. 
Because we move from a beautiful garden to a beautiful palace. We've got a man and a woman. And now the forbidden thing is not the fruit of a tree. The forbidden thing is much closer to home. The beauty lies in a person. Joseph and the woman. Two beautiful creatures. With a powerful mutual attraction at the sexual level. But she is the exception. As Joseph points out. Oh this is lesson, basic lesson in the nature of ethics and morality. And for that reason it deserves very, very careful analysis. And Joseph, so different from Adam, says no. And why does he say no? He says this, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin... Against Potiphar, well, yes, but against God. Paid a sense that in the end, ethics was determined transcendentally by God. His was not an ethics of geography, a situation ethics, where it had been so relativized that you just behaved how you liked where you liked, and it depended from place to place. He had that sense of a fixed ethical point. God. And that he stood before God. This is a very enormous thing, isn't it? I repeat what I said yesterday. You far less than we did. About Jesus, about the New Testament, about the Sermon on the Mount, and all the rest of it. But he comes right to the heart of what it means to seek God's righteousness. And that is to realize that all of life is lived before the eyes of God. Putting it another way, what the story reveals to us is the heart of Joseph's value system. His values were determined by God. And he wasn't going to compromise, even though his body and his mind might have desperately wanted to do it. He was doing something which moderns find very difficult. He was deciding, because of God, to go against his emotions. So much in our contemporary world boils down to the advice to go with the flow. Whether it's the emotional flow, the moral flow, or whatever. And so much of that has seeped into Christianity. So that people end up worshipping their feelings. Feelings are a byproduct, aren't they? They're not a goal. If you set feelings to be a goal, you could ultimately destroy yourself psychologically because each high must be replaced by a higher high, as anybody who knows anything about drug addiction will tell you. The goal, I repeat, is God. And it's so hard sometimes for us to grasp it. God in his goodness can give us byproducts 
our salaries if we're salaried care workers, our homes and all the rest of it. But the subtle temptation is to replace the goal who is God with the byproducts and begin to dismantle our lives and ultimately to destroy them. And so this story of Genesis illustrates one area of life, not the only one, of course. One of the wonderful byproducts of life is the gift of a wife or a husband. It's a marvelous thing. But make it the goal of life instead of God. And even it can begin to lose its sense of value and beauty. Which must, of course, be an immense encouragement to those who, either by reason of calling of God or by reason of the way in which life has turned out, have found themselves single. John Stott wrote some time ago, the following words, it is possible for human sexual energy to be redirected both into affectionate relationships with friends of both sexes and into the loving service of others. Multitudes of Christian singles, both men and women, can testify to this. Alongside a natural loneliness, accompanied sometimes by acute pain, he writes, we can find joyful self-fulfillment in self-giving service to God and other people. Not everybody has the gift of that kind of relationship. Joseph was eventually given a wife, by Pharaoh actually, but he wasn't prepared to take another man's wife and ruin a family. Now these are serious things, aren't they? Because in the pressure of the kind of work we do, these temptations are all too real. And what happens if we have succumbed and made a mess of things? It is a magnificent thing to be able to say, isn't it? Because we're all human. That there is a God who even there is prepared to work. And one of the leading men of God's Bible was King David. Do you remember what he did? And yet he discovered a way to repent and receive forgiveness and write those magnificent words. Oh, the blessedness of the man who knows that his sin is forgiven. But I would not be true to biblical revelation if I did not remind you that there are two things involved here. When it comes to human misdemeanor and sin, there is penalty and there are consequences. They are not the same. If I get drunk and drive my car in your neighborhood and kill your child through careless driving, 
then perhaps you will, after some years, find the grace in your heart upon my repentance to forgive me. But I can't undo the consequences. You've lost a child. David received forgiveness. But oh the consequences in his family. You can forgive the sin ladies and gentlemen. You can't forgive consequences. The consequences occur. And may require a lifetime. To handle. And a split second of foolishness in the office. Can lead to devastation for children. Who when the parents split up blame themselves. And all the associated psychological traumas with which we are all too familiar. This story reminds us. Where the basis is that we must each remind ourselves of because we live in a world in which it is being undermined. Seriously undermined, I mean, by the attacks of the new atheists in particular. You see, Dostoevsky said long ago, If God does not exist, everything is permissible. He didn't mean, of course, that atheists cannot behave. That's nonsense. Sometimes, as Christians, we're put to shame by the moral standards of those around us. And even biblical figures like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had to learn from pagans what morality was. Dostoevsky wasn't suggesting that. But what he was suggesting was that there is no basis for morality in atheism. Now, one of the foremost German intellectual thinkers in Europe today is Jürgen Habermas. He describes himself as a methodological atheist. But he reminds Europe of the fact that our value system does not come from the Enlightenment, but comes from Christianity. And precisely because he's an atheist, I want you to listen to what he says. Christianity and nothing else is the ultimate foundation of liberty, conscience, human rights and democracy, the benchmarks of Western civilization. To this day, we have no other option than Christianity. We continue to nourish ourselves from this source. Everything else is postmodern chatter. That is an enormously important statement. Especially in light of the constant accusation that Christianity has contributed nothing to civilization but war. But secondly, ladies and gentlemen, The new atheists are soft atheists. What do I mean by that? They wish to retain those values which they call enlightenment values but are Christian values. They wish to retain the values of a Western democracy 
and be atheist. A real atheist like Nietzsche or Camus or Sartre would laugh at them. And it's Nietzsche we need to listen to. Who, along with Dostoevsky, pointed out that you can't do that. If you abandon the source of values, you will in the end invert all values and destroy them. And that is a very serious thing. Richard Dawkins doesn't realize what he says, as far as I understand him. When he tells us quite straight what he thinks of values, the universe is, he says, exactly what we'd expect it to be. If at bottom there is no good, there is no evil, there is no justice. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. If that is true, that is the end of all morality. If Pol Pot and Stalin were simply dancing to the tune of their DNA, then we cannot blame them. Dawkins hasn't seen that that means an end of morality. But Peter Singer has. And because Peter Singer is one of the most influential ethicists, Peter Singer is much more serious than Richard Dawkins. Because Singer is what I would call at least tending to be a hard atheist. And his conclusion is this. A newborn baby has no more value, especially a damaged one, than a pig, a dog, or a chimpanzee. I think nothing illustrates better, ladies and gentlemen, the vast gulf than the attitudes of a Peter Singer and a John Wyatt. And may God preserve him in his magnificent stand for the value of the unborn child and all of you too. I find it deeply moving to see some of you with real courage, both intellectual and moral, Advancing into the bioethical sphere and standing for Christian morality against what will become a whirlwind. And I tried to challenge Dawkins and Hitchens to tell us publicly, but they didn't. Is that the world they're leading us to? A world where, as another hard atheist, John Gray, the professor of the history of European thought at London, says a human life is of no more value than slime mold, a particularly lowly form of bacteria. Teach that to a few generations of schoolchildren, and they will believe it. They are already believing it. It's a serious business, isn't it? It all goes back to this story. That if you leave God out, the inevitable consequence, as even the ultimately mad genius Nietzsche saw, was madness. 
And you and I have got a responsibility in this world to stand. And it's so subtle, isn't it? All that can disappear in a moment of temptation with a pretty nurse or a handsome doctor or a lovely secretary and be lost. God help us to face these things. Joseph stood, magnificently stood. Perhaps we begin to see why God let him run an empire. Why God enabled him to be a true Adam. To begin to show planet earth what a believer could do when he trusted God and sought his righteousness. And who knows what he could do with some of you, you young people at the beginning of life. Set your heart on big goals. Because God is a big God with resources unlimited. And now starts the trauma for Joseph. One day she tried to seduce him. And the only way he could get out by was, unfortunately, leaving his coat in her hand. And thwarted. Hell has no fury, someone once wrote, like a woman spurned. And she holds Joseph's coat out to her husband. And now for a second time, Joseph's coat is used to deceive. You noticed that, haven't you? It was dipped, the one he had first, in the blood of a goat, and his father is now mourning him. And now his coat is once more used as false evidence. Oh, there is such a close link between deception, isn't there, and control. And this woman wanted to come out of it on top. And Potiphar, for whatever reason, listened to her and threw Joseph into the prison. And now life had become doubly unfair. He'd been sold down the river by his brothers. He'd become a commodity and a slave. And now precisely because he'd sought to protect the integrity of Potiphar's marriage, he found himself in prison. There's enough ground to be miserable there, isn't there? To be cynical and totally eaten up by your own self-pity, but not Joseph. The Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. Where? In the prison? Yes. And so Joseph starts to work his way up from the literal bottom. And the prison guards, discovering his ability, he ends up running the prison. Until one day. He meets two prisoners, special prisoners. But ladies and gentlemen, the story leads 
on. Because as I mentioned in my introduction, this part of Genesis introduces something new. At least in a very big way it does. And that is the question of unjust suffering. Justice at the workplace, as we have heard in this conference, is becoming increasingly an issue for people in the caring professions because of the legislations of our various countries. And injustice is a terrible thing. It's one thing to be put in prison because you have committed a crime that you know to be morally wrong. It's another thing to be put in prison because you have done right. And that is the kind of thing that in the New Testament receives very careful scrutiny, particularly by the Apostle Peter. Because it's hard to cope with, indeed, if I might make the problem even worse. And you know much more about it than I do, by definition, because you're in the caring professions. The hardest problem we face as Christians is suffering and pain anyway, isn't it? It's why so many of my colleagues may see evidence of some intelligent God in the universe, but don't talk to me about a personal God and Jesus. Please don't. How can I possibly believe in a caring God? against the background of human suffering and pain. Now, there are two questions here, of course, and it would require a detailed lecture to say anything sensible about them. There's the problem of moral evil, the suffering humans cause to one another, and then there's the problem of pain, that is, when creation appears to go wrong, and there are earthquakes and tsunamis and cancers and things like that. We haven't time to go into them, but I do want to say a few words, because this, above all things, motivates me to think hard. There are, of course, two ways of looking at suffering. One is, as a famous Spanish author put it, where we sit on the balcony and we watch life streaming by and we see people suffering. The other is to be part of that stream and to suffer ourselves, that it looks differently from the balcony and from the road, doesn't it? And we need to look at it both ways, from the point of view of intellectually trying to grapple with it, and then emotionally, how do we counsel people? So instead of philosophizing about it, I'm going to do what the Bible does and tell you a story. It happened in Austria, this country, years ago. It's been repeated in my life many since, so one can illustrate many. Sitting at breakfast, meeting two Israelis, and uh, they asked me what I was doing in Austria, and uh, I said, you'd not believe what I'm doing in Austria. Oh, they said, really? What are you doing in Austria? Well, I said, I'm going to speak in the museum in Innsbruck in a few minutes' time and try to convince my Christian friends that it's worth taking the Tanakh seriously. That is the Old Testament. They said, we don't believe you. Well, I said, I told you you wouldn't. So <laughs> they said, what are you going to talk about? Well, I said, Leviticus, actually. They said, we don't believe you now at all. 
So we started to talk, naturally. And I could see them looking at each other, and then eventually some decision was made. They said, "Uh, we need to tell you we don't believe in God. I said, don't you? How interesting. I said, you know, part of the reason for my belief in God is your history. And you're in the history and you don't believe. Why don't you believe? I'd rather not say. I said, that's okay. So we went on. But eventually they were glancing husband and wife at each other. And he said, look, we are going to tell you. But please, we don't want to be responsible for destroying your faith. I said, that's kind of you, but if my faith can't stand a few objections, it's not worth believing in, is it? Why don't you believe in God? Well, they said, have you ever heard of Bashevitz Singer? I said, yes. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and he wrote a book called The Slave. That's right. And it describes in that book how during one pogrom, Jewish women and children were buried alive. And the author of the book says, the light went out. And this husband told me, my wife and I read books out loud to each other at night. And when we read that, the light went out. And we haven't believed in God since. There's silence. Dead silence at the breakfast table. What do I say? Well, I'll tell you what I did say. I said, there is no God then. There isn't any God. That solves the problem. Life is just an unintelligible absurdity. Some people have a decent life, very few actually. And for most people, life is a meaningless jumble of pain and suffering until it ends in oblivion. They looked at me very strangely. They said, but I thought you said you believed in God. I said, I do but I understand your pain. Well, how can you believe in God? Well, I say, let's think this through. You have solved the problem intellectually. But I said, there's something you haven't removed. What's that, he said. I said, the suffering itself. And now it's no meaning. And you have no hope. Now, I said, because I believe in God, I have an intellectual problem. But I said, I've also got hope. How? Well, I said, I'm now going to do something that will be very difficult for you to follow. But I do ask you to try. I said, Yeshua, Jesus, I believe not only to be Hamashiach, the Messiah, but the Son of God. She says, I know you believe that. We don't. So that's okay. But I said, just try and come with me. Just try and come with me. And imagine for a moment that that could be true. It raises the question of what is God doing at a cross? I let that sink in. And then I said, you know, I have no simplistic answer. And I wouldn't insult you. Because I knew that they'd lost many of their relatives in the Holocaust. But I said, you know what that cross tells me? It tells me that God does not remain distant from human suffering. But has become part of it. That's not a simplistic solution, is it? 
And I shall never regret, never forget standing in the second largest synagogue in the world in Budapest and telling that same thing to a young woman who was standing with her arms like this against the background of a display of the wickednesses of Joseph Mengele and his experiments on twins. And the words above her head on the photo montage were, Arbeit macht frei, work will set you free, the gates of Auschwitz. And she was standing like this, asking me, who'd been trying to explain to her the exhibition. It was an exhibition of the Feast of Israel, and I'm afraid my Yiddish is not very good, and I was trying to translate from Yiddish to Spanish. And I added little bits and pieces where I didn't understand the Yiddish and started to explain a little bit of my own understanding of the Pesach, the Passover, and so on. And when we got to this door that I hadn't noticed, she said, and what does your religion make of this? And when I told her about God on the cross, there was again dead silence, and then the tears flowed. Never forget her. I could see her still standing with her arms like that and saying to me in front of the others, why has no one ever told me that about my Messiah before? I have no simple answers to the problem of human suffering. And there are going to be aspects of it that we will not understand. But the big question for me is, is there enough evidence to trust God when everything in life seems black and hopeless? And I think that there is. And it's to be seen on that cross. Joseph knew nothing about that. But he must have known something to hold him. All it says in the text is, God showed steadfast love to him. So that when he saw these two dejected men, the butler and the baker in the prison, he noticed they were sad. And he said to them, gentlemen, why are you sad? Would you have noticed that they were sad? I don't think I would. I'd have been too consumed with my own feelings to notice. Tell me your dreams, he said. Oh, that's magnificent. What does it show? It shows, ladies and gentlemen, he still believed his own. He didn't say to these men, oh, dreams, nonsense. They're only a result of eating a bad dinner last night and the prison dinners aren't very good down here. I had dreams when I was a young man, and they dissolved into nothing. Oh, gentlemen, tell me your dreams. He still believed. Do you?